what's up everyone, welcome to another episode of Destination Radio. It's me, boy Dan Evans. I'm joined by the boy Nathan Cush. What's up, Nath? How's it going? You alright? I'm alright, son. What's happening? Nothing much. How are you? Haven't seen each other for a while, are we? Three years now. <laughs> it's good to be back together yeah. uh, in Desolation HQ. Good that we found a babysitter. <laughs> right, today we're going we're to get straight into it. We're going to talk about Leon Trotsky, his life, his theories, his contribution to Marxism, as well as Trotskyism as a sort of political tendency because it's still a visible, durable presence on the British and Welsh left. And we're delighted to be joined today by Mr. Stefan Thomas, a.k.a. Shrieking Tin Man on Twitter. So, Steph, Dobrovice. Dobrodao, Steph. Dobrovice. Dobrovice. Leon Trotsky, Lev So, Steph is, I'd say you're probably the person I agree with most online, like, as, nice as, as well as, um, as well as that separate account that you tweet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but as well, you know, as well as, like, agreeing with your politics. I mean, obviously, a, a good bass guitarist. Yeah. Um, and a good chef. Apparently, I mean, like I've uh, got worse and worse at cooking and things. Uh, really. Put some pretty banging recipes up. Well, like largely what I do is just add things to packs of instant noodles. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. Crisps yeah, and pot noodles. Like. <laughs> that's pretty good cooking. Yeah. Pretty good cooking. Um, right. So um, <laughs> we've kind of done this arse backwards in the sense that we always plan to do an introduction to Marxism and then. <laughs> You know, from there do Leninism, but we're sort of jumping ahead. We're going to do an outro to Marxism doing, instead, aren't we? <laughs> and doing Trotskyism uh, straight away. Um, this will probably enrage at least one of our listeners, but, um, you know, it's got to be done. He's an interesting guy. Trotsky, <laughs> safe to say, a pretty divisive character. I'm going to read the name index on Trotsky from Lenin's Selected Works, which was produced by the, uh, I think, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, um, published in Moscow, picked it up in Oxfam and Cardiff City Centre. Um <laughs> Absolutely banging introduction, right? So Trotsky, Bronstein, Lev Davidovich, 1879-1940, a bitter enemy of Leninism. At the second congress of the RSDLP was the delegate from the Siberian League who adhered to the Iskra minority. After the congress, he waged a struggle against the Bolsheviks on all questions of the theory and practice of the Socialist Revolution. In the years of reaction between 1907 to 1910, he was a liquidator. In 1912, he organised the anti-party August Bloc, during World War One, he adopted a centrist position, waged a struggle against Lenin on questions of war, peace and revolution. Upon joining the Bolshevik Party on the eve of the October Revolution, he continued his act- active factional activities. In 1918, he was against the inclusion of the Brest Peace. In 1920-21, he opposed Lenin's policy towards trade unions and the trade union movement. In 1913, headed the oppositional elements fighting against the party's general line. The Communist Party exposed Trotskyism as a petty bourgeois trend in the party and defeated it both ideologically and organisationally. In 1927, Trotsky was expelled from the party and in 1929 was exiled for his anti-Soviet activities and then deprived of his Soviet citizenship. Well, well. By Grover Freer. <laughs> I don't know uh, when that's published, but I kind of think they left out that they killed him. As well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, nothing. Fairly big there. thing to miss. Um, yeah, yeah um, and was mysteriously. <laughs> I also listened to a pretty um, balanced overview of uh, Trotskyism, which was a podcast on I found on Spotify by the uh, Stalin Society, which um, <laughs> again pulled no punches. But no, I mean, I we were chatting off mic, and it is really it's kind of strange in that I can you know I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to like. No, I don't. don't <laughs> when it comes to like Grams, you know Gramsci, uh, uh, but obviously I did my PhD on him, and but you know I think I know a fair. I've done a fair amount of reading of Marx and Lenin over the years. 
by no means as you know well read on those as I am on Gramsci, shamefully. Mm. But it's just very strange that you know Trotskyism remains such a strong tendency within within the UK, and I've just really never ever read until in the prep for this podcast. Never read until a single, two hours ago. <laughs> yeah, until I'm reading it right now. Yeah. Um, never really read a single thing by him. So you have some fantastic recommendations. But anyway, that's that's enough. Steph, why don't you take it away talking about Trotsky's life? Yeah, I mean, like, part of the reason part of the reason why I wanted to talk about him really is just trying to recover the memory of Trotsky from partly Trotskyists, partly people who are not Trotskyists. But essentially, he's, he's kind he's become misted essentially by the passage of time, but also by his enemies and his friends. So even, we were talking again before, we were saying that the socialist organisations in this country that are what I would call Trotskyist, even they don't identify as Trotskyist. He's kind of the completely hidden man behind the curtain or the totally hidden influence behind a lot of political thinking, a lot of political action in this country. But he's also, he's just an interesting bloke, to be honest with you. I mean, if anybody had a life like that, you'd want to know more about it. It's bewildering. I mean, he's born... Uh, it's 1879, and he's born in um, sort of central Ukraine to a rich family, and he leads this extraordinary life of exile, imprisonment, constant, committed, um, like almost sort of compulsive writing, and very, very strange political sort of whips or motions. Like we were saying, I mean, the funny thing is with that characterization in that collected works, like, that's not even that incorrect. I mean, this is someone who loudly and openly agreed, disagreed with Lenin when he was seen as, you know, the most important the figure for the, yeah, yeah. For the world proletariat. Um, so I just think it's worth talking about him. That's broadly why, you know, set up my stall as to why I'm doing this. And your background is um, you were in the SWP, which yeah, is I'm the... Yeah, one of those petty bourgeois which, 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 <laughs> which is the, the lead and proponent of Trotskyism in the UK. Yeah. Um, and you said your codename in there was Comrade Delta? Is that... Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> something I don't like to talk about, yeah, no, but you're not. No, you're not. You're not. You're not in the SSP anymore, are you? No, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> I left precisely over that. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually went to Marx, like the Marxism Festival in um, yeah. London, a couple of times, and when Owen Jones was actually using it as a vehicle to sort of promote himself, <laughs> um, and oh then God. just proceeded, and then just proceeded to sort of shit all over them. First opportunity he had. But, but I didn't really know. I didn't really know anything about the SWP, and it was just like. Yeah. Um, just very, very posh people um, calling each other comrade. But, you know, but lovely, lovely people um, from when I was there. Anyway, and, um, didn't I, you say I didn't know anything else about them at all. And I didn't really Didn't you say before it. that um, the SWP used to kind of coach their members on how to not... Oh, that was the rumour, wasn't it, in the 80s? That you had to, the rumour was that they had to sort of teach some prominent members how to be sort of less... Less posh, basically, if they wanted to have any chance of. Uh... Well, there was one. There was one gentleman in particular. I mean, I'm not going to name him. <laughs> Klinikos. Yeah, Klinikos. Um No, it's a bloke from Rhodesia. He's about five foot. You know that bloke. And. Um, no, no, no. Klinikos. Oh, region. right. Sorry. Anyway, is so, he from Rhodesia? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh, he's great. But he like he still do you still have this sort of um you still have this um sort of habits that you'd notice after a while. And there's one that you'd notice is um, the people who wear leather jackets. If they were particularly insecure, 
about their class status or their you know proletarian bona fides or whatever, they would be wearing a leather jacket. So <laughs> Dan's just taking his leather jacket off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly, slowly removing your leather jacket. Like, yeah, it's just you, you know, Yanis Varoufakis' face is now officially ended. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know it's a strong look, like but it's um all penfold, like he's made, made a major contribution to British market. Penfold. <laughs> yeah, penfold. Yeah, man. Sorry. I mean, you, I mean, he's a, he's a he's a bit of a beast, this clinic in terms of his writing, his out his output as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's um, prodigious. It's unusual. I mean, like we talk. If you talk about the SSP's Martin Festival, for example, even there, I mean, you would have discussions of, the, like, the, the years ago, someone built a bot that would produce Marxism, meet the titles. It would be like, what does horses say about you know, uh, any any number of things. What do they say about uh, football? What yeah, do they yeah. say about yeah? What does horses say about this? But you never really find much mention of Trotsky himself and you know this is the whole thing of like hiding this behind it it's not, it's not called Trotsky but that's that's called... what I that's what I definitely yeah. th- that's what I think now looking back it was a, it I, I didn't notice that I just thought it was a Marxism fest yeah. but I also naively I didn't know anything with the SWP or anything like that and because I because I've never been politically <laughs> engaged in the slightest I've got a clue um yeah so what I read about Trotsky and I can't remember who said it was that, like he's this unique blend of He's a theoretician, but he's also someone that was uniquely involved in the practice of revolution and Marxism. And and like Nathan and I were saying, he looks extremely nerdy and and weak. But when you actually read his life, you're like, oh my God, this dude is actually like... You know, Hard, on, the, like, on the front lines, you know, that, repeatedly in prison. This is the thing, really, it's just like... Oh, led the Red, him, led the red like Army. The res- respectful gimp of, like, the Soviet... <laughs> U- uh, well, you know, the yeah. Russian Revolution, but all of a sudden he's just, like, you know... He's nailed. Making sure, like, you know, troops don't run back um, on, the, like, the southern... Well, yeah, so doing the... Rev- like they said, doing the October Revolution, I think he came back, didn't he? Like, yeah, like yeah, he yeah. was uh, in Europe... Well, somewhere he's in, in Europe. He's, he's in, in um, America. Oh, he's in America, sorry. Um, he got arrested he in Canada in, as well, yeah, didn't he, on the way back, yeah. You know, Trailer Park Boys. Yeah, yeah. So Nova Scotia. Yeah, he was in prison <laughs> in Halifax, which is like a twin city with the same place where no Trailer way. Park Boys are. Trotsky Park Boys. Oh. Yeah. He's, um, it's a small world. So he's... I'll tell you another fact about... No, actually, it's not that good. Never mind. All right, I was going to say that uh, there is a, a terrible film called The Trotsky, which the is... Trotsky. Uh, yeah, so it's this... Um, Jay Bashar's Canadian actor, and I, was, I don't think he has got... Because um, Trailer Park Boys is Canadian... But he's just plays like Trotsky in school, but high school, like modern high school. Oh, is it? Yeah, <laughs> it's just, like so bad. Like, yeah, yeah interesting. Like, Drives his Trabant around and stuff. Um, <laughs> but he does. Come, but he comes back to Russia, doesn't he? And like, mid, like, but he then he's like actually charged with directing the troops and you know like yeah. at the actual ground organization of the revolution, which it's was one of, not what I expected. The, the f- it's one of the sorry. weirdest things about him. It's like it's I don't know. It, I want to get sort of flowery and call him like a logomaniac or something. He's just like this intense addiction to books and words mm. and writing and reading. But like during that period when he's leading the troops in the Russian Civil War, he produces in his armored train, he produces a newspaper for the train. So that is next level drop mm-hmm. paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is absolutely <laughs> He's selling like, it amongst the troops like yeah, sort like, of them at a pl- placard like yeah. so bizarre. <laughs> but you know, a couple of dozen people he's like, no, this this definitely needs a newspaper. This situation needs a newspaper more than anything else. Commander, what shall we do? Tip tap tap and type Wait there, new fish. Um but uh I mean yeah, he's a leader of the Petrograd 
Soviet, 1905, yeah. like age 26. Um, <laughs> it does make you want to spit. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. Like, oh, no. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's like, like, it's like um, <laughs> you never mess with like the small, short bouncer than you because they're obviously like the nuts one. Um, yeah. And he's very much like that, I think. Like he was looks to be deceiving. And, and if you had to make... Um, like a, well, he wrote his his biography in it. Like, was it was, yeah. it, my, was it called My Life or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, An but, attempt. But if they made a film <laughs> of if my they, life, if they made a film of it, you know, it's just this wild, constant exile, imprisonment. Thing is, um, a tough lad. You, um, you got second time. I think you got sent to um, Siberia. Like, how the, do people keep escaping in those days? Oh, now any guards? Yeah, yeah. Or like, it does seem weird, doesn't it? Everyone like, kept escaping. But like, before he got put bizarre. in prison, he was just like to a guy, oh, "Can you get me out of here?" And he's like, yeah, right. So he's just like in like freezing temperatures over a tundra with like, you know, sled dogs. Like, um, <laughs> they keep and like, you know, he's just like, got across. And the guy kept falling asleep. So you had to like, boot him to get That's it. the thing. And, the, and like, you know, and I can't, you know, run to the end of my block. Yeah. And then these people just, not only that's is he escaped your, from that's Siberia. That's on your PIP application, isn't he, it? He, he sca- yeah, he escaped for, can't raise my hands above my head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he, he comes to, you know, he'll like, escape from Siberia or whatever. And then he'll just like pop up and then. If that was me, I was like, wow, I've just done the hardest thing in my life. I'm just going to retire from everything yeah. and yeah, just yeah, chill yeah. for like for the next decade. Whereas he just keeps going. Yeah. Um, so the ma- most important thing about him, I'd say, um, from South Wales' perspective, is that he's hard. And that's mm. the most important thing. Yeah, the no, biggest is. compliment you can give anyone, like his tough bloke. Like. Yeah. Um, but he's interesting <laughs> because he, you know, he, he because he lives long, longer than Lenin and mm. Gramsci and stuff, he actually gets to theorize about, you know, he sees the rise of Hitler and stuff mm. and, and he contributes loads, isn't he? So, um, Talk us through what happens in the revolution, Steph. What what does he do, what does he do? And miss no detail. Oh, sorry, let's say uh, ni- well, yeah, we can go nineteen oh five, then we go nineteen seventeen. Yeah, because no, okay. I think nineteen oh five is not something that is is yeah. well known as like a you know, and an- is it antecedent? Is that how you pronounce antecedent. it? Antecedent. Antecedent. All right, there you go. Uh, just kept my bow. Um, <laughs> antecedent of the um, skunk antecedent of, of, the, <laughs> of the of this nineteen seventeen revolution. Um, but it's not, is it? It's not something that's uh, yeah, well known. I mean, and it's it's astonishing. I mean, it's it's like you said. You know, you you wanted to sort of you keep thinking you should do like an introduction to Marxism, and it's like towards the end of his life, he's got this tick of referring to the ABCs of Marxism, which is really deeply patronising. It's just like people disagree with him. He's like, no, comrade, read the ABCs of Marxism. But he's check your work. Up, yeah, exactly. He's like. <laughs> absolutely insistent on what he sees as classical Marxism throughout his life. So he's sort of raised as a relatively rich child um, in a tiny, tiny village in sort of central Ukraine. It's like this sort of site of extraordinary ethnic hatred and stuff. There's, um, there's a family as well. Yeah. So. There's a um, there's a Russian poet and writer called Edward Limonov who comes roughly from the same area. And he says when he was a kid, and this is in like the era of peak Stalinism, that the Ukrainian kids in school used to sing into Pol- what is it? Into Russian Poland Jew, take a knife and stick it through. <laughs> so like it's this extraordinary thing. Just, he lives in the Pale of Settlement, the only area in the Russian Empire where Jews are allowed to settle legally. He's sent to Odessa, which is the sort of local big city and it's also i think it's I, again my geography is terrible and i have no idea of where anything is it's all just guesswork i think it's like a port town so it's relatively politically free the newspapers are published in french 
Um, so he's able to sort of pick up on political ideas. He starts off as like a Russian nationalist and a Rodnik, a, a, mm. a people person, if you're going to translate it literally. Yeah. Um, um, so it's quite funny. He just loved Odessa so much. He'd be taken around Paris by people and he'd be like, yeah, it's all right. Like Odessa's better. Looks good as hell, man. I've got to look Is at like, Google Maps. Yeah, it's a massive boulevard and stuff. I think they've mm. loads of money into it. Oh but like the last time, last time I saw Odessa in the news, it was like, the mayor was being pulled up like an enormous scrum because it's like relatively near the civil war and stuff <laughs> in Ukraine now. But it was just like one of those sort of baffling post-Soviet scenes where you like literally don't know which way it's down or up. <laughs> so anyway, he goes off, he becomes radicalized by um, other members of his family, actually sort of partner of one of his sisters, I think. He becomes like a socialist then roughly about the turn of last century. Oh, like initially he was quite against it, wasn't he? He yeah, just didn't yeah. buy into any... And we're talking about like... 1890 kind of like its political awakening and it's one of those things i mean like i don't want to like when i'm talking about this make him seem like less of a dick than he was because he had like this particular <laughs> habit right <laughs> of like it, i think deutscher describes it in um the first of his trilogy he says that he would hold an opinion and he told it and defended it to the end right up until he changed his opinion and then it's like right okay no i hold this other opinion now yeah. <laughs> i will defend this to the death you know and it's like how do you deal with that? Someone who will not move. Someone who will not move politically or not admit to themselves that they're moving politically right up until the point where they make a complete step change. So he's exiled. He moves to London. He works with um, Lenin in... Well, he starts off in the South Workers Rus- South, South Russian Workers' Union. He's, like, again, pointless trying to build a timeline of when he was in prison, when he was in exile, because there's too many instances. He ends up in London working with Lenin on Iskra, which is a magazine of the exiled Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party. And then he moves back. He's working, I think, again with a workers' union, gets imprisoned. Then they have a falling out. So this is what he was talking about, where he argued he's part of the Iskra minority, he argued traducing Lenin. He submits a paper as part of the Siberian delegation to the Congress of the party in... I think response to um, Lenin, Lenin's story to lap, what has to be done, where he basically, it's called Our Political Tasks, and he says that Lenin's focus, the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, is over the idea of who should be a party member. So basically, Lenin's idea is that you would have a core of professional revolutionaries who are paid by supporters of the party to do the political work of revolution. That ends up being the majority, the Bolshevik, the largest section of the Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party. The Mensha people, the smaller portion, believe that it should be closer to something like the British Labour Party or the German Social Democratic Party, a membership organisation which is open to everybody. Now, Trotz you pay Len- three pound and then you can vote for exactly, who you want yeah. until it goes the other like, way, like like I've done several times <laughs> with the Labour Party. <laughs> But so basically Trotsky is opposed to this and to be fair to Trotsky, Lenin is writing from exile. Trotsky is actually in Siberia, <laughs> having been imprisoned there and exiled there, um, internally exiled in the weird way that the Russian Empire was able to yeah, do. Yeah. So Trotsky says, no, by splitting into these two sections, you are reproducing the worst habits of capitalism. You are saying to people, you can only be a party worker. You can only supply material support. You can only be a printer for the party. You can only do this one job. Whereas what Trotsky says is, no, under socialism, everyone will be everything. Marx's old idea of, you know, man will be free to, Mm. is very bourgeois idea, but Mm. man will be free to hunt in the morning, 
philosophies in the afternoon or whatever. Yeah, whatever the other one is. Play Pod- Nintendo podcast in the evening. evening. Yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah. Just ceaselessly podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> goes podcast for your armor train. <laughs> so that's his first sort of major theoretical contribution. So then he... It's difficult. It's always difficult to work out where in the world is Leon Trotsky. So then he ends up somehow in Petersburg. There's been a run of mass strikes, which are one of the sort of greatest democratic upsurges that the world has ever, ever seen. Because Russia at this point is a sort of decaying, grotesque, awful ruling class, which is institutionally anti-Semitic, as we've talked about before. He's only legally allowed to live in certain parts of the Russian Empire. The Russian working class is concentrated into organi- into companies, into factories that are habitually larger than the ones we've got in Germany, Britain, France. So they strike for things including a 10-hour day, a five-day work week, and they largely achieve these things. However, in the process of going on strike, in the same way that you have in South Wales in doing the minor strike and things, you have these organizations of worker self-help which come to be known as Soviets and this idea of a workers council basically emerges at this point. Rosa Luxemburg is extremely excited about this. She writes a book called The Mass Strike where she correctly sees this as the way forward for humanity that you would organize workers based on where they work, based on the things that they need to do and they want to do and they would decide these things democratically. Trotsky somehow Again, it's one of those things. It's like that Woody Allen film, Zelig, about that yeah, gentleman yeah. who turns up constantly at the right time in the right place. He's elected the presidium of the Soviet in St. Petersburg. A policeman turns up towards the end of this. The, the momentum's run out. There's too much chaos in the streets. Not enough economic activity, basically. The police turn up. There's not enough worker self-defense and stuff. And they just all go to prison. He is, he is the head of the Soviet closes the Soviet and then is taken off to Siberia for a couple of years. So there we go. So that's what he does in the Russian Revolution. But this is his is this, training, isn't it, essentially? Yeah. And so this is the, the, well, it's the training of the whole, for the for the Bolshevik movement, isn't it? For the, mm. Because, you know, it, I mean, it's, it is forgotten. It's a forgotten yeah. period. And, um, and they spent because they spent years building up that sort of party and the discipline. Yeah, um, they, they did allow him to marry though within the gulag, didn't they? That's, that's amazing. Sounds yeah. tidy, actually. No, gulag. but the funniest thing was because they you ended up, I think, um, like kind of staying all still in prison, but you know you stay with your wife and they had like a kid and everything. Mm. But then she was like, oh, she could see he's like destined for great things. So she's like, listen, if you want to bounce, you can bounce. He's like, oh, cheers. He just goes, nice like, leaves, leaves his wife. Yeah, <laughs> she's, th- she's thinking he's like, he's never going to say, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Okay, see you. Bye-bye. You know, no, like, I mean, so, if, if, you like, want, if you want to, you know, join the revolution. No, no, it doesn't bother me. Go see your friends. No, just stay here. <laughs> and then he's just like, oh, throw. And it's like the Simpsons, uh, you know, like door slam, um, footsteps running, uh, plane taking out. We'll put yeah. that in. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So it's it basically, it's this... I mean, if you think back, it's it's very, very difficult for any of us really to imagine what it would be like in 1905, where you have absolutely no democracy. There is no, there is not a single country apart from, oh, depending on the mood, Germany was sometimes have some elections. You know, Britain doesn't have full adult suffrage at all. There is no country in Europe that is democratic, basically, not a single one, and. It's uh, the central 
idea of Marxism is that the proletariat are the democratic class. They are the only class that can only come to power through democracy. There is no way, like the bourgeoisie came to power with this control of the means of production and certain technological implements and through armed force and things, the proletariat can't do that. The only way it can do it is by organising collectively and taking mass action. The only strength they have is their numbers and their ability to shut work down at the point of production. That is their power. So the emergence of the Soviet and this demonstration of workers' power is basically in this isolated, strange country, the first glimpse of what it would look like if workers would rule. It's pretty good. <laughs> you could argue the Paris Commune precedes that. But it's this exceptional moment. Now, part of Lenin and Trotsky's theoretical work up until this point has been arguing that a Russian revolution is possible. So now the, the you know, the touch paper's been lit on that. Are we Trotsky, 1905? 1905. Yeah, 1905, yeah. So basically, the idea up until this point was that revolution or socialism would first take hold and it would first succeed in the places with more developed economies and more developed workers' movements. So in Germany in particular and in Britain in particular. Lenin Trotsky's argument is, right, okay, our workers' movement is not that developed. We do not have as many workers. Peasants form the majority of the population in Russia. But because we are so backward, because we are so weak, our ruling class is equally weak. Our ruling class is equally useless. Our ruling class is completely fragile. So this is the subject of Trotsky's first major political contribution or theoretical contribution, Results and Prospects. That takes us up there, which he writes in prison, which is pretty (laughs) Well, I'll have to to read that because, like that, going back to the Gramsci episode, that's the Mm. distinction Gramsci makes about the state in the East and the state in the West, about how, despite the fact the state in the East might look yeah. The strongest with the you know, sort of repressive bourgeoisie in fact that it's really brittle and, and fragile mm. because they don't have any mandate, you know, they, yeah. they rule through coercion rather than Exactly. And I mean the other thing is I mean Trotsky quotes um de Tocqueville's law, which is the idea which is sort of ancient axiom um from the sort of eighteenth century political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville in it, or nineteenth century, I don't know. Uh, he says that yeah, the state the one is visits, this when he visits America, like yeah. That guy gets obsessed that with it. Lad, yeah. He says the state is as weak as to the point at which he chooses to reform itself. So basically, the idea which is central to Trotskyism, and Trotsky, towards the end of his life, would never ever claim to that there was such a thing as Trotskyism. He would always deny it and say that it was Leninism and he was just going back to the ABCs of Marxism. But what they're saying is genuinely revolutionary. And it does explain basically a lot of historical movements since. It's got explanatory power, but also it's something he's saying to try and persuade people that this, these things can be done. He's saying, right, we can have a revolution in Russia because the Russian ruling class is terrible. They don't know how to run a country. We can depose them relatively quickly. However, because we're so economically weak and because we're so marginal, this will have to be supported by revolutions elsewhere. This will have to be supported by revolutions, particularly in Germany, but also in Britain and France. Now, this does rely on the idea that Germany would immediately give loads of aid to Russia, loads of economic support, loads of you know technical support, technical expertise. But it was the best chance they had, and that's what Trotsky decided to go for. What you're talking about there, I think, is that isn't that this theory of permanent revolution? Yeah, I mean, basically, the idea of a permanent revolution is that. It's, it's quite a sort of Christian idea in a way, because it's the idea that sort of the last will be first, the sort of, you know, this overturning of um, the natural order. So basically, 
like as he sort of considered himself like a student of the German Social Democratic tradition, he was massively well versed on Kalkowski and people like that. But what he said was that precisely because the Russian ruling class was weak, then they would fall first. The fact that the Russia was underdeveloped, in fact, made it more likely that there would be a revolution there. Now, the sort of so it inverted all the Marxist exactly, thinking yeah. up to that point, didn't it? So it justified yeah. the idea that a revolution was possible in the first instance. Exactly, and it's also you know it partly is a contingency. Partly, it's why would you devote your life to proletarian revolution in a country where you've got eighty percent, ninety percent of the population of peasants if you didn't believe that it was possible? But that was Marxist orthodoxy up until that point. Lenin's work with Trotsky on the idea of permanent revolution upturned that idea. The idea was that, and this, you know, this is a pattern that you can see sort of repeated across history, that it's actually the most marginal places that have these enormous bricks, these revolutionary bricks. So, you know, without wanting, I don't want to sort of give a litany here, you know, I don't want to end up just listing things, but... In our lifetimes, we've had um, the revolutions in Eastern Europe, which overthrew Stalinism. We've had um, the the Arab Spring, which is a similar thing. Tunisia, Tunisia, this tiny country, this was incredibly de- dependent on foreign cap- capital, totally at the whims of the world market. You know, if there's a crash, fewer people go to Tunisia. You know, go to Tunisia on holiday. The, their entire economy collapses, a fruit seller sets himself on fire, it sets off this huge revolutionary wave that sweeps across the entire continent of North Africa from Tunisia westwards and then up into the Arab world. You know, East, like Hungary and East Germany and those other periods we've talked about. But, you know, if you, talk, if you look back to 1968, you've got, obviously that was focused in places like, you had uprisings in places like Mexico, Things like that. So you have this sort of wave effect and this idea of the capitalist world is interconnected and this idea of the world system as being a world system that if one thing moves one place, then it may affect something happening elsewhere. The Russian example can act as a lever to the German example, which it did, except the German example failed. This idea was a breakthrough. It was a theoretical breakthrough. It's been borne out by historical experience. But where does that leave? I mean, the fact that the the Germans didn't get mm. involved, and you know, there wasn't this big uprising around the rest of Europe at the time when the, the Bolsheviks took power. Mm. Didn't that also sort of simultaneously sub- sub- subvert yeah, um, or dispro- disprove the idea of permanent revolution? Or? Well, it, it doomed that particular revolution. It doomed mm. the Russian revolution to backwardness and having to take a different path. I mean, there's a bit in there's a bit in the sort of related oppositional works where Bukharin says, absent the, absent the international situation, the Soviet states doing pretty well. And Trotsky said, well, absent the law and the weather, I can go out naked <laughs> in Moscow right now and nothing will stop me. But basically, we all we have, we have to live within this international situa- situation. So there's this fact of, then it's it's either a sort of inspirational thing or it's a depressing thing, yeah. depending on how you look at it. Either the last should be first, the weak will overcome the strong, but 
it's reliant on or that will all fail but it's reliant on this interconnected wave of revolutions it nearly happened in 1917 if you think how far back in capitalism's development that was how much we've developed like we you know like the space age which is all these things that have happened since whereby the the productive forces that underlie capital are much stronger but there's still this enormous inequality on a world scale on a national scale and there's still these pockets where things break out and those can act as levers for the rest of the world to transform itself in the same way that i mean if we if we go back and i I won't sort of go back too far but with the the british revolution that brought to power cromwell and (laughs) that's Basically, Britain was the first capitalist country to develop precisely because it was so weak, because it was relatively poor in comparison to other parts of the world, in comparison to India, at the time, in comparison to China. It was a relatively backward country, but it acted as this lever that inspired, you know, or the Dutch revolt at the same time. These things changed the world forever, as was potentially the case with the Russian Revolution. So that then informed the practice of both the Bolshevik and the Menshevik parties into the big showdown, which is going to be 1917. But he's actually out of the country at this point, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. So why did he go, why does he go to America, the exile again? Yeah, I mean, it's partly that. I mean, it's like he's trying to raise money. That's one part of it. He's also, like at this point, got a reputation as a writer and a sort of commenter on world affairs. He's Again, it's like, the Owen Jones of his time. Yeah, man, exactly. It's just like Getting constantly like, writing articles with like no punctuation at the end of them, like what the left should say. He's exiled in various places. He's exiled in France. He gets kicked out of France for opposing the First World War, along with most of the Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party, Lenin, all the other people in exile, largely opposed the Second World War, First World War, sorry, which is makes them exceptional considering the absolute yeah. slugs of their time who <laughs> supported the First World War. Including in Wales, should note. Yeah. Um, C.B. Stanton and all that. Yeah, rough, um, Yeah, it is. So, like, he's he writes, actually writes probably the best sort of theoretical work about opposition to war from a social perspective, which is War in the International. It's a very, very good uh, book. But basically, in that, he... It outlines the idea of what would become known as revolutionary defeatism, which is what um, Lenin held to at the time of the Russian Revolution. So in that, he outlines, basically, it has a goal of an early version of humanitarian intervention theory. So at the time, certain German sources were saying, well, if we fight a war with Russia, we can liberate all of the oppressed nations within Russia. We can liberate the Estonians, the Latvians, the Ukrainians, you know, the UN to break free under Russian rule. And Trotsky goes, okay, that's fine. I'll grant you that. You can free all those countries. But in so doing, you will permanently weaken the German labor movement. If you were to, def- if you were to beat Russia, then Germany, the strongest, most economically developed country in in Europe at the time, the best workers' party at the time, is what they thought, mm. would be bought off with what they think he calls the crumbs from the imperialist table. So the sort of psychological, material wages of war, the benefits of winning a war, would ruin your workers' movement. And we need your workers' movement just as much as we need your... That's powers. interesting, because that's yeah. similar to like Padmore and... Um... And Lenin stuff earlier, isn't mm. it, about the labour aristocracy and stuff? Yeah, because it's like, it's, it's basically this idea, which 
I cannot believe still has to be fought every single time there's <laughs> a know. war in this country. Yeah. This idea that, oh no, sometimes it's left-wing to support people just being fed into an enormous yeah, human mincing machine. This is left-wing. No. This is socialism-like. Yeah. But, they, but the UK has what? got a... I mean, it's a, a brief uh, deviation, but like, yeah, the the British sort of... The imperialism and sort of latent militarism on the British left, despite yeah. being like r- routinely pointed out by like Lenin, Trotsky. I think maybe Marx even did it in... You know the condition. No, yeah, um, there's, a, there's a line about how the British worker will never be free yeah. with the when the Irish yeah, workers will be paid less. Yeah, um, and, yeah like and um, you know, but the idea of you know imperialism basically, as you said, buys off the working class and integrates mm. them into essentially the ruling class block yeah. because it they get the spoils of war. And it's the it's like 101 really, um, but <laughs> yeah. it's never even mentioned in like the British Labour Party, and it's I don't know wild. Anyway, sorry, to it's, interrupt. it's Go, also just like. I always blows my mind because it's such a low estimation of people's politics. I know, it's the idea is, I mean, like we've obviously all of us lived through the New Labour years, and the, the idea behind New Labour was this idea that if you just allow workers, you know, like if you say, "Oh well, Romanians are committing eighty percent of cash point robberies. <laughs> we got too many cost of us coming over here. <laughs> we should bomb Afghanistan and stuff." The people will somehow then support you. Mm. But it will strengthen them, and it will sort of lead to more sources thinking you know, it's bewildering but it's like oh no this one weird trick if we just support war then we can have these social yeah. improvements at home and it's like nah man it's like it ruins all of it but it's become a cult in a, in a way isn't it and then the British left this the, the militarism in particular is one of the weirdest <laughs> elements of it yeah. um, like, a, like a pathological obsession with warfare yeah um, especially the new lay, the progress lot um, it's so wild yeah it's, it's, it's <laughs> really really grim yeah so, so apologies, Steph. So basically, one of the one of the benefits that the Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party has here is that they genuinely hate Russia. They, for good reason, hate that place. It's horrible. It's cold all the time. <laughs> so all you've got to eat is like preserved pork. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they just they genuinely hate it because there's nothing redeemable yeah. in our system. But you know, apart from like a couple of Fabergé eggs, look pretty dope. Mm. Isn't it? yeah. Absolutely terrible, <laughs> completely irretrievable system. So they engage in anti-war ed- agitation. Trotsky is expelled from France because of this. He ends up on the eve of revolution in um, New York. And there's still, like, to this day, if you, like, read... Well, I used to, but if you um, see the things that the far right talk about, they'll talk about basically Trotsky, and they say, oh, well, the thing is, the Russian Revolution was funded by Jewish bankers. Mm. So they say, because he was in New York at the time of the revolution doing fundraising, talking to Russian emigres and Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers out there, that he somehow collected money from the sort of evil Jewish capitalists to fund the Russian Revolution. Similar type of bewildering theory to this, even though it's much more respectable, is Peter Hitchens, who believes that both Lenin and Trotsky were agents of respectively German and British intelligence. They were, they were, because um, uh, obviously during World War One they were kind of accused of being German spies anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. to kind of undermine the Russian war effort. Mm. Yeah, 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 surreal. And the thing is, like you know, this will like happen again in our lifetimes. How many, how many wars have there been now mm. since we've been born? I mean, there's, there's obviously Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq. Those are just the big headline ones that we've been involved in. Cheerio. And how how much genuine opposition have you heard to those wars? You know what I mean? There's always this sort of sense that people, well, the only thing you see, we can't possibly oppose this war because we might be accused of being turncoats and stuff. You know what I mean? It's like uh, Taylor's oldest time, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, like I said, basically what I'm saying is just 
the Sabbath Sabbaths and George Galloway's rather than, <laughs> than uh, Paul Mason's. Anyway, so he ends up in... Um, <laughs> Ying and Yang. Yeah. Yes, he ends up weird, in... two of the weirdest people probably Paul, ever. Paul Mason. And they just happen to be sort of on the fringes of the British labour movement. Paul Mason was a member of Workers' Power, which is like a tiny Trotskyist organisation of some... I remember they split like a couple of years back and they had like this big announcement. I think they're the, com- again, I'm g- the thing is, see, Trotsky's, Trotsky's saw proper train spotters. I, I know um, because I am one. Can I just jump in and say yeah. Workers Power is the best name for a national, nationalised utility company? Good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So like, they had like a split. I think they're the committee for the fifth international. So, the, so yeah, second yeah. international is Labour, third international is Lenin and Trotsky. Fourth, fourth international is just Trotsky. Fifth international is just Paul Mason. Yeah. <laughs> and Screaming into a room. And Steyer. Yeah, they had like an announcement <laughs> of like, oh, we, it's terrible, we fall. And I think they split into two factions called Permanent Revolution and Workers' Power. And I looked it up and there was like, they split and it was into groups of 60 and 40 members. This is international. The Committee for the Workers International or the Fifth International had six, 100 members. Pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, that's fine. It's not bad, but it was announced on their website like the most consequential thing. Mason's so weird. We'll, we'll do another episode on Mason um, <laughs> or like a special. Live from Newport. Subscription only uh, that image, episode man, on him. I'd like, I can't even hate him because that image of him uh, with, you know, the England flags painted on yeah. his face. It's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, man. The pure hope in that man's eyes. Made me forget all my Welsh nationalism, <laughs> all, my, all my basic hatred of English football. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> he tries to get back. Basically, the re- there's a revolution in February of 2000. Are we in 1917 now? Yeah, we yeah, are. Just yeah. to clarify, we're beyond 1905. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 12 years, nothing happened. 1917, yeah, yeah. second revolution's <laughs> kicking off. Yeah. It was basically a grim period of retrenchment, repression. Um, he's out of the country for a long time. I mean, like, there's a big gap in his writings of the three Lenin's years. in Finland, isn't he? Yeah, Le- yeah, Lenin's doing various things. I mean, Lenin, like... I think he's one of the first, um, like, people to uh, get serious money out of personal injury compensation. He gets Class. hit by a car. Yeah. One of the, like, and he gets, like, quite a large compo check out of that, and he lives off that for a while in Paris. No way. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but and then he founded Injury Lawyers for you. Yeah. That's he why they did. were both obsessed with, like, armoured trains, isn't it? Because yeah, yeah. Just, you got hit by a car, and he's just like, no, <laughs> it's, it's not Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> So yeah, he basically his revolution breaks out in February of uh, nineteen seventeen, and like this, the Russian ruling class is incredibly weak. They fold almost immediately. The Tsar abdicates. There's a sort of democratic government installed. Yeah, the Duma, right? You kind of you gave. Well, that's a bit before, wasn't it? Yeah, you yeah. kind of gave up like a, almost like a puppet part, or like not a puppet parliament, but like you know an empty parliament with no powers to kind yeah. of placate the masses. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's it's like this endless sort of like you see it now in sort of what used to be called totalitarian societies or more sort of overtly controlled societies, where they just like allow a tiny bit of democracy and they're mm. like, oh no, that's too much democracy now. Mm. Well, that's too much. I can't possibly have that. Yeah. So Russia was going through that sort of thing. But I mean, what the idea, the central idea of what was the norm of Marxist thought then, the, the sort of vanguard of Marxist thought at the time, was that you had to proceed through what they called historical stages. Mm. So you'd have, you know, the feudal society, then you would have a bourgeois revolution like we had in this country, or like you had in the French Revolution, and then eventually you'd proceed to socialism through that. The idea that basically Russia could jump that middle stage mm 
was an anathema. It, it did have some elements of industrialization, though, didn't it? Because yeah, I, yeah. I think that almost like you think of Russia at that time of just like almost like the Winter Palace, like yeah, and then yeah, just yeah. loads of peasants outside. Yeah, but like the, the that's the thing. The, 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 fa- the, the factories were like actually bigger when they despite yeah, despite yeah. everything. Because I think like when in I think it's in Results and Prospects, but it could be any number of it, the works that he mm. won't litigate in this he sort of goes through the average numbers of workers employed in yeah, the yeah. enterprise and I think in Britain it's 168 and then in Russia it's over a thousand yeah it's a so massive factory yeah like. it's astonishing factories I mean it's like he's even a reference his terrible Manix album released a couple of years back like like so many Manix <laughs> albums um, but there's a song in there about Huzovska, which is like a city in, oh, the, and, uh, yeah, by the Rostovs yeah. he's mentioning that but basically what he's saying is that not only is Russia's ruling class weak, but in order to reach the point of historical development that they think they need to be at, they're relying massively on the interpolation of foreign capital, so mm. in particular German expertise. I mean, Trotsky went to a German school. Like, German Germans, like, on a freelance basis and on, like, a sort of encouraged basis when we went into Ukraine at the time. Um, and then you've got, obviously, like, Welsh technical expertise with that huge lad yeah. mm. going over there and setting up these factories. So you've got, like, this huge social gulf. You still, you get this worldwide now. You've got in countries, you know, in the sort of more recently industrialised countries like India and China, you've got sort of peasant handicrafts and stuff like that next to workplaces larger than the ones that any of us have ever seen, more sophisticated than the ones we've ever seen. And that's basically, I guess, describing his theory of uneven com- combined development, isn't it? Like the idea that, well, countries obviously develop unevenly, some countries are backwards, and, and then he basically says that you can have different levels of development, mm-hmm. so you can have a country which is extremely backwards, I guess, and elements of advanced stuff can sort of be inserted into it, yeah, so it creates yeah. this weird sort of composite... Yeah, I mean, basically, like, because we live in a system of competitive accumulation, even if you are a backward country, you're still going to have some things which basically outpace other countries. So in the Russian example, what was exceptional about Russia at the you know turn of the last century or at the time of the revolutions was this extraordinary concentration of workers. Whereas, you know, if you were to look at somewhere like Bangalore or something like that, you'd have this extraordinary concatenation of tech workers and new technologies and things as things which, you know, beyond our knowledge in the supposedly developed countries, which are exceptional there, but then you'd have coexisting with that, you know, forms of economic activity and things that would seem, you know, backward to mm. us or less developed. And it's also about the inter... How other countries influence one another as yeah, well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, that's yeah. the, I guess the combined element. So, basically, yeah. So we'll go back to the narrative of it. He's in New York. There's a revolution breaks out. He desperately tries to get back to Russia. He's imprisoned on the trailer park boys island, and then um, the Russian government, the newly democratic government. Asks for him to be returned, and he's allowed back into the country. And I think March of nineteen takes him a while, doesn't it? Like eight weeks yeah, to get yeah. back or something. It's bewildering. I mean, like I can't imagine what it'd be like to just be like, okay, well, I'm gonna try and cross the Atlantic. I'll yeah, on, on like three, a, four weeks. Yeah. Of steam, my life. steam yeah. boat or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I imagine like like in terms of how they find out like no phone as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just absolutely hell. Wild. Mm. Yeah. Can't think of anything worse, Jeremy. <laughs> Could be like just a massive cruise, though, can it? Just yeah. a massive swingers party. It's um, a bit in like when he's being when he's being arrested, 
Um, like his kids, like it, by by the British in Canada, his kids attack him, <laughs> uh, attack the policeman. He's like little kids, like ten, twelve, <laughs> and then they're like he's, he's like laughing his autobiography. He's like, oh, they turned to me and they said, did I do did I do good, Papa? Did I do good, Papa? About just beating the shit through a policeman. I wonder why you went via the Atlantic Ocean rather than just crossing through America, and then you know. You okay. probably would have just like died Walk, like yeah. Oregon Trail. Alaska, yeah. yeah, it would have been like the Revenant, like yeah. <laughs> Oregon Trail. Yeah. You have died of dysentery. <laughs> so yeah, so he, we're, so he's, got so he's, got, he's, he's gone back to Russia. He's gone back to Russia now. Yeah. So does he miss the fight then, or does he get there? Basically, when he turns up, his immediate thing. There's two organs basically. Initially, the Soviets are set up in 1905, but then they're dissolved. I mean, he's taken to prison as part of that dissolution they emerge again as part of the sort of broader sweep of worker struggle he just describes them um, as like an instrument of necessity but basically they come up and they are directing large parts of public works and also directing supplies of food transport communications things like that on his way over he decides the constituent assembly, which is sort of elected on what we consider to be a normal democratic basis, the idea, you know, one man, one vote, or as near as whatever they were doing then. I don't know if they were allowing women to vote back then. Would have been incredibly experimental to allow women to vote back then. So he basically says no, all power to the Soviets. He's the first person to really declare that. He goes, you can't possibly have two democratic bodies side by side. The Soviet is a quicker form of democracy. Representatives are supposedly able to be recalled. They're elected by workers in the workplace who make decisions about, you know, like we're saying, distribution of food, uh, transport, communications, things like that. Um, and he just goes, well, you just can't hold. You can't have these two separate forces of democratic power in one society. One has to take super, uh, one has to supersede the other. One has to take precedence, and the Soviets take precedence. This is roughly similar to what Lenin said then in his April thesis, which is like a month after. <laughs> so it's an extremely compressed period of history. It is mind blowing trying to separate these things out. It is almost impossible. <laughs> um, at the time, Trotsky is not a member of the Bolshevik Party. Like that in yeah, three, yeah. again, in the set, he, he was not. He was a scab. He was a turncoat up until that point. He was a member of a tiny grouping called the Mesraunci, which is basically like him and maybe a couple of hundred people. Like sort of poor Mason side. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, he's become sort of the most prominent orator suggesting these kind of things. I, I do not understand how he's not imprisoned over this period. Well, by Lenin? No, by the Constituent Assembly, by the sort of more democratic forces. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an unbelievably tumultuous time. The Constituent history. Assembly, for clarification, is when it's the there's Menjevics and stuff in there, isn't there? It's yeah. The, it's the so everyone who's participated. Yeah, there's like a normal-ish yeah. parliament. Um, in the Parliament, as far as I remember, and I should really know this off the top of my head, but I think there's like a majority of Mensheviks and social revolutionaries. There's also the cadets who are sort of, I don't know, the equivalent Kids would like. be the Liberal, yeah, <laughs> like Liberal Party, yeah. or like the probably nearer to the Tories. Um, in terms of like just being, they were cons- there's something like con- constitutional revolutionaries. I don't know how they translate that. So then, but it's more or less. You know, not what we would call a normal. Yeah, it's nearer to that than anything Russia's pl- had before. Plural, yeah, yeah. So then it's just 
it's this in extraordinary onrush of events because you've got so much going on. <laughs> you've got these two dueling sources of democratic authority. You've also got basically reactionaries. You've got, I mean, there's a heartbreaking bit in the, his book about the 1905 revolution where he's talking about pogroms, which are like a common occurrence in the Russia of that time, yeah. where you just have an explosion of, um, because of the sort of various national and ethnic minorities in Russia, an explosion of sort of bottom-up but also top-down political violence against people. So there's an organisation called the Black Hundreds that are kicking about at the time. There's also General Kornilov, who's um, in charge of the sort of large parts of the armed forces, who is alleged to mount the coup, basically. So that's the sort of the context. Like, yeah, the yeah. proximate event yeah. of the actual seizure of power by the Bolsheviks. So that's, that's the sort of thing. It's like, well, this is all bubbling up. The Constituent Assembly cannot react fast enough at all to deal with any of these political threats because it's got conventional elections, because history is moving so rapidly. And, you know, history continues to move insanely rapidly. Yeah, and a real risk. I mean, the counter-history yeah. is a real risk of immediate counter-revolution. Yeah. And, that, and that's, yeah. that's probably what would have happened, I imagine. I mean, like, the, the wildest thing to imagine, I mean, you hear sort of endlessly, like, and it's, it's one of those things, and Trotsky comes back to this constantly in his writings, and it does come, if you've, like, spent enough time around this kind of, it becomes banal. It's a sort of banal observation to go like, oh, well, what about all the other violence? What about all the fascist violence and stuff yeah. like that? I mean, the, the most painful example is in the in the French Revolution, you hear endlessly about the terror. You hear constantly about, oh, this is, you know, awful. They were just stringing people up after and centre. About three, 4,000 people died there. When they put down the Paris Commune, it was tens of thousands yeah. of people died. You know, that's only that's only a hundred years later, but it's just like no those those lives the people who are in charge of society are much more ready to get rid of lives in that circumstance Absolutely. than other people who are taking power that's, that's from That's the them. thing with like um, um you know, with the because they eventually got executed. Mm. Yeah. In a sense, obviously like never condone killing children, no matter how wealthy they are. That's, that's definitely the policy of the podcast. Yeah, right? but like um <laughs> I'm I'm dissenting from that. But um yeah, I mean in terms of just like, you know, the amount of kind of suffering and death that like, yeah. you know, was on, almost on their hands and to be like, Well, you, you maybe you shouldn't have shot them. Then you say about yeah. the Tsar, um I this. Got thrown down a mine shaft, didn't they? Nobody's basically saying like the Tsar was like so deluded that like, you know, the the revolution is basically at the gate of the palace and he's there like writing his memoirs about how he's gonna be off-boating in Europe and things like yeah. that and he's I just like completely can't grasp like, the gravity is, of the yeah. situation there is a like, Netflix series now called The Last Sars which is about them and at that point hot. he was he was uh, on his train and like his um, his wife was like uh, people tell him like listen like there's there's rioters at the gates mm. ah the guards will sort them yeah, like, he's yeah. Just, like, the, the guards have just joined the rioters yeah ooh and then yeah it's the sort of the maddest thing about this sort of period. I mean, it, again, this is relatively recent history. Mm. This is like you know, my my, my great grandparents might remember this. You know what I mean? It's mm. not yeah. that far away. Um, my great grandparents did it. Like. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Like. But it was um, what's bizarre is this sort of interlinked, literally incestuous European ruling class. Mm. So you got you know the the, the Russian 
royal families linked to the British one, which is linked to the German one. Yeah. And it's just like they live their lives completely insulated from consequence. Yeah. Even and then um, this is like this huge emergence of consequence with the First World War bleeding into these revolutions. Even when they were prisoners, they had like a really good life. Yeah. Until they got put into a basement and executed. Like. <laughs> it tends to be. It tends to be when the revolution's going badly that you do that. Well, it's always in the first stages, stages of a revolution where you're like, no, we keep them. We keep them well, for a bit. The, it's the same in the French. Right? The idea was to put them on trial originally, and yeah. Trotsky had this big idea in his head that, like, oh, you know, I'm gonna judge Judy the shit out of this. <laughs> I'm gonna put them on trial and just yeah. like lean into him. But then, as like, do you know, yeah. this is a bit later on to where we were, but like, um, as the uh, Russian Civil War developed, and there were whites uh, who were like pro uh, royal mm. forces getting nearer and nearer their position, like yeah. their local kind of uh, Soviet uh, or Bolshevik forces just decided to execute them and. Yeah. So, all right, the the revolution happens. He dissolves the constituent. The constituent assembly gets dissolved. Yeah. And the Soviets take over. And then there's... How, well, I mean, how, how soon does the civil war... I mean, it kicks off pretty much instantaneously. What happens is, and this is one of those events that's almost completely unique in world history, which is that they have... they You know, the, the great mobilising slogan of... The revolution was bread, peace, land. I've been told by other people there is bread, peace, land, and a gun. Yeah. But bread, peace, and land. This idea that the First World War was so, you know, beyond anyone's understanding. The first time you had these huge conventional forces of just mobilized peasants and workers just absolutely destroying each other, like from trench to trench. So that is really like a moment of great crisis for everybody involved. So mm. basically, the Bolsheviks alone amongst the social democratic parties of, like, Western Europe, oh, you know, not Western Europe, but Europe, are absolutely committed to getting the war ended. So part of the reason why the Constituent Assembly falls, part of the reason why the Soviets gain precedence is because they haven't ended the war. They can't bring the war to an end. They've got these different ideas about sort of Russian greatness. They've got these different ideas about, you know, their responsibility to the Allies, whereas the Bolsheviks, to their endless credit, like, no, this is dreadful. This just needs to end now. So Trotsky sent to negotiate, like I said, in the book, the, the piece of Brett Levotsk. Yeah. Or, um, and basically their entire gamble, like we've talked about, the idea that this one backward country could free itself but it would only be free with the assistance of other countries because of its backwardness, because of its weakness economically. The idea being that you'd negotiate this peace, but simultaneous to this, you would agitate amongst workers of the other countries to agitate for their own peace. You would basically wait for a European-wide revolution to take hold, which is a big, big moonshot, but it almost happened. I mean, there was like a mass mm. strike in Austria when they were doing this, but they negotiate with the Germans. They they basically cede large parts of the Baltic countries, the islands of the moon sound in Finland, various other countries which were part of the Russian Empire. They just go, no, Germany have them. You can have them as long as we end this war. Trotsky then refuses to sign this out of some principle, and then Lenin basically overrules that he goes no we will accept these awful terms we will lose vast swathes of our territory as long as we get to end the war so then the war's ended but then basically out of just a complete revulsion at the idea that ordinary people could rule society like this that sort of you know exiled intellectuals could be 
Minister for War, Minister for Foreign Affairs and stuff. Also just the complete horror at the idea of peace, I think. Um, <laughs> most of the countries involved in the First World War then decide to attack Russia. Including the, the Brits. <laughs> yeah, including the Brits. This, yeah. this is something that, is, again, is, it's it's an unknown period of British history. Like most of the, mm. the sort of vile things the British Empire have done. But, you know, the, the Brits played such a leading role in supporting yeah. the whites, didn't they? Mm. Um, yeah, it's bewildering. I mean, it's... It's horrendous because, like, again, supposedly the First World War and the Second World War were fought for the sort of, well, First World War was fought for the idea of neutrality, mm. of, you know, peace among nations. Obviously, Russia is declaring itself neutral. That's exactly what it's doing now. It's going, nope, no yeah. more in this war. Um, it's fought for the idea of Belgian neutrality and British storytelling. Um so it's all just for, you know, free nations. How, the, how on earth is a British worker free at this point? Is mm. <laughs> a, a British man of working age in any way in charge of his life? So there's this... These there Also, to be fair, heroically, there are parts of the world where, they, where Doc, um, Sylvia Pankhurst, one of the mm. suffragettes, organises to try and get dock workers to prevent sending arms to Russia. The same thing happens to San Francisco. Um, there are basically different workers' organisations supporting it, but uh, Russia's sort of encircled, almost completely encircled, and it's an, an astonishing miracle of history that they managed to survive that period whatsoever. But it's only basically because they were able to raise a force of extremely willing volunteers, although less willing as the war mm. went on, that they were able to win this war whatsoever. So you're talking specifically there about the Red Army, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah. Talk, I'm talking about the sort of immediate post-revolutionary period and then the period of imperialist invasion. I found it interesting with creating the Red Army is basically they had to use a lot of the old yeah, um, yeah. armies. So they're using mm. basically like, you know, uh, the Tsar's army mm. and they had to be like, right, get this general, we'll get him a minder so he doesn't yeah, kind yeah. of... Because, you know, essentially you've, well, just, to, you? you've just, you know, overthrown mm. the regime and then you'd be like, right, we're going to have to use the people who are instrument of us and stopping us now to kind of fight those forces. It's, it's kind of, it's one of those things I find like quite miserable, quite depressing about the whole thing because it's like, ultimately they did have these ideas about, um, you know, democratic management of the army and things as part of the Soviet, you know, any revolutions are sort of war for the army. And it went out the window. Yeah, because it's just like, well, we have to, like, there are certain levels of technical expertise and stuff that we have have to use here. I find that grim, but it's, yeah. I mean, I don't want to sort of downplay the first 10 years of the Bolshevik Revolution and say that they're very bad or anything like that, but it is an astonishing nightmare that those people live through it. Yeah. And the fact they live through it whatsoever is remarkable. So after the Civil War, mm. then what happened? But I mean, in the Civil War, Trotsky was chief of staff of the Red Army, was he not? Yeah, he was, yeah. So he was producing that newspaper for the train, like we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, 20 Mr. Spare a day. He was like, <laughs> bust out the paper, like. Yeah, <laughs> while I'm on the toilet. <laughs> yeah, so he, he basically, he's engaged in fighting various, various wars on various fronts. So you've got, you know, in the far east of Russia, you've got, like, Russia's obviously this inconceivably vast country to us, but it's also just structurally very very unstable so it's got various national minorities at one point there's like one of the 
there's most sort of storied people fighting against the Russian Revolution. It's just a Czech regiment in the middle of Russia, and they just have to try and fight their way out to get back to Czechoslovakia, <laughs> which is astonishing. They're just stranded there when the peace is declared, yeah. so they're just fighting against the Russians. You also had the Ukrainian anarchists led yeah, yeah. by uh, yeah. Makhno. Yeah. Mr. Makhno, yeah. yeah. Black Army. So you get like. The original get, ISIS. King. <laughs> <laughs> Makhno was, what is it? His policy was. Um, Beat the whites until they're red, and they beat the reds until they're black. Oh, right, <laughs> yeah. his color. Was so it the Ukrainian like, Free Territory? Yeah. Was it? Well, yeah. We'll do. I'll do another episode, Mark. No. Yeah, um, it's quite yeah. hard to find anything like um, you know, like books on him and everything. A badass. Yeah. It's also just like it, it was obviously a uniquely chaotic time. It's this first emergence after, as we said, the commune of this new form of democracy, but it was just like it, it's quite it's. It, it's one of the things you don't want to look at it and go you don't want to romanticize this kind of thing but also just this extraordinary free-for-all like it's like like this free-for-all of all the nations one of the things which is brilliant like reconstructed in china mayville's book about the october revolution is the idea like like trotsky said that the weaker states will fall first the most the weakest link in the chain would go so the October Revolution is also a story of the sort of striving for independence of all of these national minorities within Russia. So you've got Finland declaring independence, which is one of like the proximate causes, which is like, well, we've lost Finland, might as well go for it for the actual seizure of power. You've got Estonia, you know, Latvians, the Latvian um, Soviets are some of the first to be declared and some of the strongest supporters of the, the Petrograd Soviet. But it's this sense of like the sort of terrifying but brilliant sense of endless possibility. It's like, mm. well, this can all be carved up. Trotsky in war in the international courts, a German political economist who just keeps saying the world has been carved up and it will be carved up again. And he's obviously saying in the context is just going like Germany will get more territories out of the First World mm. War. But the world is not stable. Things can change in an extraordinary <laughs> clip and things can happen that you would never have imagined would be possible. So more broadly around this time there is an astonishing wave the likes of which we haven't really seen since but we've seen things similar to it of uprisings all over Europe I mean the the first one being being the Irish one the Irish rising in, 20, in 1916 but there's just this astonishing like Europe wide de- declaration of Soviets as a Soviet in Limerick yeah, as a yeah. Soviet in Liverpool but it's just this opening of the idea of democracy for probably the first time on the world stage. It's astonishing. All right, so in the midst of the, the Civil War, you know, absolutely brutal. They come, <laughs> as I said, they come through it, no idea how. Yeah. He survived, I don't know, um, a lot of shit, basically. Then they go about building, well, this new socialist state. And yeah. what's Trotsky's role in it and, and what happens? Well, Trotsky's basically, he's got various things. He's At this point now, he's con- basically from 1921 onwards he's being demoted. So he is, by the end of the Civil Wars, obviously, is enga- he starts to just get an itchy. You can just sense it in his writings. Mm. It's just something's not right. He's not feeling it, right? There are a couple of ways to read this. The sort of, one of the ways you can read it is, basically, he is a nostalgic for the period of the Civil War. He just loves the Civil War. He loves everything about it. He just thinks it was Good. superb. Basically, the way it's characterised <laughs> in some of the historiography is what they call war communism. But essentially, him and various Bolsheviks would go about 
just requisitioning things, so just taking stuff, class. just taking, yeah, just. But you know, it's it's it's, it's class to a certain yeah. point, but it's like Pirate also time. like basically pi- peasants like peasants simply love to do. They just love to hold their grain. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's damn too yeah, yeah, just loves to hold their grain. And the thing is, I mean, we talked about this very briefly, but like. He, he was like a Kulak ethnically. I mean, his, oh, yeah. his parents were rich farmers, so it's like you just he like, knew all the yeah. places they were hoarding it. Yeah, like. exactly. Yeah, so he would check the fireplace. Else, yeah. yeah, nobody else would know where the green was. Cutting up with a pillow as green, yeah. green coming out like <laughs> cutting up with the kids full of green. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all just green all the way down. Yeah. but he like uh, he just says yeah. He, he writes about it nostalgically at one point. He's just like he's just charging on the countryside, issuing. Coloured pieces of paper that were in theory banknotes is the way he puts it. It's just like it was kind of money, but it's not really money. Is it? It's like they'll never be able to claim this. Obviously, like large parts of the economy have collapsed due to the war and the civil war. So it's just like giving them IOUs and just going, we'll have all that grain. See you later. Under that pressure, right? Peasants do genuinely start holding their grain because obviously they've got to feed themselves. So Hannah's their favorite thing. Yeah, they, but, they just love to do it. But in, in in a sense as well, because like you know, you do have like um, this <laughs> peasants is as peasants does. But yeah. like um, also though, you, you do have the issue of like there are food shortages. So for yeah. them to hoard grain is it makes yeah, it's sense. Yeah. No, but it's, it's also fundamentally anti-social if there's yeah, you know, if there's. But it is. Yeah. It is. If there's, if there's, I mean, they've worked to produce that great. You shouldn't just get. That's true. It. Yeah. But it's also just like. Well, they can hopefully can hold off on this and like get a higher, like, you know, price yeah, for yeah, it later. So it's it's been so basically like he was uh, his zenith. Then he's in charge. He's gone from being a bloke who's permanently in prison, permanently on the run, allegedly permanently drunk. Just, he's just gone yeah, straight, isn't he? He's, he's gone. He's now in charge. Cleaned of the, his act up, basically. Yeah. yeah, and he's in charge of the large, you know, the the military of the largest country on earth. It's an astonishing <laughs> reversal yeah. of fortune. So basically, he starts getting itchy. He doesn't like several things about the new Soviet state. Lenin introduces something called a new economic plan. Trotsky's very insistent. Again, as his life gets harder and harder, he's always like, no, I loved the new economic plan. It's great. But it wasn't very good as far as he was concerned. His introduction of, introduction of certain market forces. So basically introducing market back into agriculture, for example, paying peasants for the grain you're taking from them. Um, there's also certain things. I mean, he... Basically, the entire theory that he holds to holds on the idea that Germany would have a revolution and then it would become supportive of the Russian state and that it would allow Russia to flourish and to reach a level of greater economic and technological development. That has not happened. That is like powerfully not happened. Rosa Luxemburg has been murdered. There have been various failed risings. The Munich Soviets put down in 1918. All those those things that were supposed to happen have not happened. So then what do you do? What's your position then? If you were entirely reliant on on the entire basis of your theory and practice was if Russia has a revolution, all the other countries of Eastern Europe and Central Europe will fall and then they will support Russia. What do you do in that event? So he just becomes very touchy about things. He starts arguing. Irritable. Yeah, really irritable. Like, like I'm, I'm bad enough, man. But like, he starts off 
engaging in various theoretical projects. I mean, one of the things he starts going off on, and this is like, this is absolutely where my heart lies with Trotsky. I love it more than anything else. He just realizes that loads of like the culture and art being produced by the new Soviet society is tacky mm. and terrible, and he just does not like it. He is throwing a lot his... of uh, love, love, life. Uh, love, was it love, life? <laughs> love, love, yeah. yeah, on It's slates, just loads like, of like keep yeah. calm and cool, like on yeah. posters and stuff. <laughs> like, just terrible. <laughs> so he's like. No, but he's just like, this is terrible. This is like, this yeah. is tacky as hell. And it's also like, he is determined, but being like a provincial bloke from, you know, like like the worst kind of provincial bloke where you're like rich, so you think you're better than everybody else around you, but also you know the way you come from. Like the town he comes from today has got a population of 183. I mean, it's like, there is not a single valley town smaller than that. It's like a level of smallness that we cannot, conceive of so he's constantly his work is dripping with references to dante classical allusions allusions in french latin all this stuff and he's just like oh no the like the work that people are producing is terrible so he just has a go at that he sort of launches various things i mean there's like there's points where he's getting up and he's making speeches, basically just calling everyone around him a dullard. <laughs> so, like, my I think it's Mayakovsky, man. I, I like off the top of my head, right? Mayakovsky writes um, a famous poem called "A Cloud in Trousers." He's like a Bolshevik um, bloke who's basically banned by the Bolsheviks from being a Bolshevik, but they're just like, "You can be a poet. You're really good at it." And it's about like one time he gets really horny. And he's in like he's in some city in Ukraine, and he's just he's thinking about his revolutionary aspirations and his aspirations to be a poet. And he's like in like a meeting of various Soviet writers and stuff. And Trotsky's one like that poem's good. Now this new one you've written about like people from Mars looking at the Russian experiment and thinking that everything's brilliant is fucking terrible. Sorry, <laughs> no, it's terrible. Not. So like you need to fuck your ideas up. So he he's basically conceived of this thing, and it's quite Marxist, but it's also not that particularly Marxist. He he argues in in his work on literature and revolution, he argues that basically you can't force a proletarian culture. There's a group of writers in Russia at the time called Proletkult who are sort of arguing. There's like I, I've read some of the poetry, some of it's quite beautiful, but also some of it's just like, oh, we hear the hooter come in, and we all come running, we love it, we love the hooter. <laughs> and it's like, what on earth are you writing about it? Well, you know, workers don't enjoy being workers. This is the central idea of Marxism. It's not just like, they're not just all enthusiastic about it. The idea of Marxism is to get rid of the working class as a category, to abolish work as an idea. So Trotsky's just like raging about this. He basically comes up with this theory that what makes a work of art great is the extent to which it's a full psychological synthesis of that person. Now that's not a particularly Marxist way of thinking, but it's also better than just writing about how much you like Factory Hook does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's no. <laughs> like a Vanga Boys song, isn't it? It really yeah. is. Yeah, the, the, the factory. What the factory who does come, man. What do they call it? The shock workers and that. Yeah. They had all these different categories and they adopted sort of Fordism and yeah, Fordist yeah. techniques and everything, didn't they? And it's like, it's a, th- a thing of just trying to make this historical leap. Like like we said, you know, we've, we've lived in a relative, well, not relatively, a bourgeois democracy now for three, four centuries. To go from the plough to basically space, which is what Russia mm. managed mm. in the first half of the 20th century, is an astonishing leap. So they, they resort to various means to try and get this sorted out. 
one of the things he points out in his sort of later work about when he's in the opposition, when he's fully on the outers, when he's not <laughs> when he's not in favour of the Bolsheviks in general, at the moment, you know, the basically he's gradually becoming marginalised and marginalised. One of the things he points out is that Russia's only able to keep this relative level of technological development going because of easy credit markets. Now, this is 1927. 1929, Wall Street crash happens. So they're basically in the run-up to this period, Russia's entire, you know, steps towards socialism are funded by issuing enormous amounts of government bonds and things. And what happens when they all come due? What happens when the financial system, which you are ironically relying on as a sort of nascent worker state, collapses? And basically, the story of his downfall is tied with the story of reaction, the rise of reaction in Russia, but also just worldwide, man. Like, the world just takes an astonishingly poor turn. So he's faced with this. He can see this camp. His job in as part of the common turn is trying to marshal this worldwide revolutionary movement that is not there. So it's just this gradual realisation, a sort of Looney Tunes, Hanna-Barbera thing of just running as fast, fast as you can and then not realising that you've run off the end of a cliff. So he sort of starts pointing this kind of thing out gently. And it is quite gentle, his work, but then it gets increasingly angry. He's like a reply guy to Lenin, isn't he? He is, yeah. How did they, just as an aside, how did they get on? Apart, well, like what, in Lenin's testament, right? Lenin says that Trotsky is always very gifted, but like he's got some personal deficiencies. So he's like sort of hinting at the fact that he's a bit of a nightmare to work with and he's yeah. a bit hard to be around I mean like the stories that like people have you know people have read other things about this have told me of just like the famously used to just sort of sit down like central committee meetings of this nascent worker state and when he wasn't getting his way he would just like start reading novels just like, eating <laughs> oranges <laughs> like showing off you know just like uh, juggling yeah. and stuff like yeah. doing wheelies <laughs> around the uh... <laughs> yeah so he just like Basically, you can see that this is getting worse. And it's, it's one of the things about his writing, which is appealing, is that he's compulsively honest. He yeah. isn't lying about the prospects or revolution. I, I he isn't, did, uh, you know. his autobiography is just, he generally treats himself in like an honest light. Yeah, he doesn't bizarre. like kind of hide anything. <laughs> like in, in his autobiography, there's a point where he's talking about like himself. Like it's quite, it's not that exhausting, right? But it's a bit like when he's about 12 and he's like telling you what his grades were. And it's like, it's a really well-written book, but yeah. like, I do not need to know what you got in French when you were like 12. But like, he's saying like, let, right, let us get a measure of the man. Or let, let's look at the boy at 12. So he like, gives like a sort of genuinely quite cut in yeah. portrait of himself as like this sort of provincial oddball. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like... <laughs> but you were close to the... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, man. It's all... It's, but yeah, he's, so he's, he's compulsively honest. I mean, so basically... Because he's unhappy with the new economic plan, his theory as to why the Soviet Union degenerates is partly because of its international isolation, but also what he says is that, in theory, because they've now deposed the bourgeoisie or they've deposed the old ruling class, there should be no ruling class. Yeah, or there should be workers ruling for an intermediate period until you reach communism, at which point there will be no ruling class. Because the new economic plan starts funneling money back to rich peasants, he conceives of the theory that basically the central faction, the centre faction in the Bolshevik party are deriving their class power from the Kulaks and they're deriving their class power from the higher peasants. So he 
start saying this. So one of the things I was saying before, but one of the things he starts arguing for is he just says, well, well the rich peasants, they shouldn't be allowed to vote. And that's fair enough. I think that's absolutely fine. <laughs> it wouldn't change things, but it's just fun. Just the idea of having like a village meeting and one or two people there aren't allowed to vote and they're too rich is <laughs> good as hell. Uh, who votes we should all sleep with his wife? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Motion passed. <laughs> two against. Yeah. yeah. So he's, um, you know, he's basically, he's, he's slowly realising that things aren't going exactly to plan. So he... Um, feeling increasingly isolated and increasingly alienated by this world that he has in large part created, he begins to organise in opposition to the sort of ruling faction, the Stalin faction, with various other people working in conjunction. He works along with Kamen Evans and Ovyev in um, organising the joint opposition. And then they sort of go to conference, they, they sort of put their positions. I mean, the joint programme of the of the opposition is one of the most depressing and impressive documents of that period. What he says in there, I mean, I think of sort of, it's difficult to sort of come to a full apprehension of the first 10 years of Soviet democracy because it was one of the strangest things that has ever happened. Um, hopefully it'll happen again, but mm. not in exactly that way because that would be terrible if it happened exactly like this. He points out in the joint program of the opposition, he's going through various economic things. There's this constant thread in the Russian Revolution, in the stories of the Russian Revolution, about um, just trying to stop people drinking, just for a moment, just for a second. If you look at the... I've got um, a book of Soviet art, Mm. and the main theme is just like, it's like, comrade, please. (laughs) (laughs) Just put down the bottle, man. Did you see one of them? Uh, He's just like, like, he's like got his head in his hands. He's just like, last night I drank too much and I ripped up a tree. No, but there's no... (laughs) But you're right, that is such a recurring theme in all the um, the propaganda of the time. How on earth are you going to stop drinking? Yeah, just stop, like... So, like, that's one of the things he brings up in the joint program. Interestingly, just in the actual, like, moment of the Civil War and the Revolution, it's like one of his bodyguards, and he's talking about how, like, glorious this bodyguard was, this proletarian gentleman. But he's just saying, like, that they were just going into, like, rich people's houses and just absolutely smashing the hell out of, like, huge stores of extremely expensive wine. And they're saying, like, all oh, the gutters are red with It's, like, such a waste, man. But basically, at the actual revolutionary moment, Russia was drunk for about two or three weeks, and, like, almost nothing could get done. It was, like, this sort of incredibly urgent thing that, like, nobody could sort themselves out because everyone was in a panic, so they just got howling. <laughs> so they just only sort that out. So anyway, in the joint program of the opposition, there's stuff about like trying. Like, one of the things you want to do is tax vodka. And there you go, tax vodka. Mm. And then that's right. It seems perfectly reasonable, but it's obviously a revolutionary suggestion at the time. <laughs> but he's like, we need to get back to the ten-hour workday. We need to get back to this. But also, he points out, and I shouldn't say he here because it is like a document he worked on with other people. Points out that average wages for people have not increased since 1913. So they're a lower level in 1927 than they were before the start of the First World War. To give you an idea of the extent of the devastation that Russia faced because of the First World War. So I, I did um, read, though, that apparently um, because, you know, it was now like a dictatorship of the proletariat, mm-hmm. like the proletariat saw themselves as more part of things. So they kind, yeah, of, yeah. They kind of accepted a bit more rather than, you know, like... I mean, it's it's kind of like I again I I don't want to go back to the theme of finding things depressing, man, because it's like one of the one of the main things that I do. But um, there's a bit in um, 
that like in in those documents if you read like Lukács and people yeah. um people will be like oh like this one point where uh, Lukács is like oh it's wonderful ideas Bolshevik Sundays you know like everyone get together and work for the good of the country on Sundays for free <laughs> and it's like no I'm not working on Sunday man no. <laughs> like it's but it's just like the, again it's the level of desperation they were forced into mm. by the fact that they were trying to raise this new form of workers' democracy in extraordinarily bad conditions. I mean, the nearest equivalent that you've got today would be something like Rojava. And mm. again, that's heartbreaking to think about. But it is just like, how do you try and institute entirely new democratic forms of society when you have nothing? It's like, you, like Lenin's idea, Lenin's formula for socialism was um, Soviet power and electrification. So he saw sort of the material benefits of thing, having things like light, you know, as being linked to the idea of socialism as the idea of democracy. So it's 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 a grim read, but it's, it is fascinating to see how it developed. And it's fascinating to see how, even at that point, there was still able to be an open opposition, an open democratic debate and things. You can read, if you read the transcripts of his speeches then you can read people voting on whether he should be allowed more time mm. you know interjections from the floor and things it was still a democratic society it was just one that was coming off the rails extremely quickly so basically then Trotsky as part of the opposition he's organised this joint opposition there's a right opposition and left opposition um, there's then a demonstration yeah, he's, there's a conference he's not successful and sort of winning over the majority of the party. There's a demonstration to honour the 10th anniversary of the October or November, depending on what calendar you use, revolution. And at the demonstration, he decides to go sort of back to like his activist roots or whatever. He unveils some banners. He has uh, done with the cool like done with the new economic policy man. Um, and... Then the police basically bundle him. Uh, the police attack him. They sort of leave him then. Uh, he goes back to his flat and then he's detained. And then he's sent into exile. And again, it's almost impossible to list the number of countries that he's exiled to. He's first exiled. Turkey, is it? Yeah, I mean, t- Turkey's where he ends up on like the first round. Oh, he right goes yeah. to Almaty, um, I think, in one of the stands. Where yeah, Turkmenistan, yeah. Kazakhstan. Um, and like he's complaining because he's like... I can deal with it, but my wife just can't tack how much malaria there is around here. Because, <laughs> like, she really just, like, she has no taste for malaria. Yeah. So um, I'm fine, boys, but, like, yeah. you know, pff, the missus. Yeah, she's complaining constantly yeah. about getting malaria. About the people dropping dead from malaria. <laughs> yeah. like. Oh, I, I, can, I can stand the malaria, but not her whining. Am I right, boys? <laughs> <laughs> so he then he heads off to um, Turkey. He, tr- he basically tries to seek asylum in various places. One of the places he's denied is Britain. So they, he applies to come to Britain. He can speak English. He speaks English. Like there are, there are clips of him speaking yeah, English because yeah. he was like, you know, for this period of his life, he became like a commentator on world affairs because he was out of power. So basically that's what he was there was just the bloke who, you know, could comment on world affairs. Um, but he speaks English with a French accent because he clearly learned different French person, which is strange. So then he ends up in various places. He ends up in France and then eventually ends up in Mexico. But he's, throughout this period, I mean, basically there are points of distinction at all points sort of from 1923-24 onwards where he's just appalled by the international policies of the sort of leading faction in the regime. 
So one of the things is, I mean, if if we talk about Britain, he sort of wrote on British affairs. I mean, there's a few things he, he sort of can't resist having a dig at Britain. I think because Britain was like the pre yeah, the preeminent world power when he was a boy. I think he just he sort of loves saying it. Down. <laughs> so there's like a, there's a story I think in Deutsch's book again about how when they go to a meeting of like the independent Labour Party or the Labour Party in the early 1900s him and Lenin, it's held in a church and they start off and end the meeting by singing hymns and they're both just like the fuck is this? Yeah, what are you doing? Astonished, like, like absolutely astonished because. Like the Russian Marxist tradition was like very proudly atheist. Mm. I mean, one of the things is like I don't want to digress into theology or anything here, but sort of the Orthodox Christ is more holy than the Catholic Christ, who is more holy than Christ. It's about um, Russian's religious faith in um, one of his books about the condition of Russia in general. He says the Russian religious faith is held very lightly. It's just like, you know, you'd have a photo of Christ up like you'd have a photo of the Tsar. Whereas with Britain, he's bewildered by the sort of enmeshing of the Protestant tradition and the Labour tradition. But also, he sort of, he finds basically the British and (laughs) the trade union leaders and the sort of leading lights of British Labour to be basically like very flowery and also sort of pathetic. Like throughout this period, people on the left in Britain are writing sort of shock things about the sort of degeneration of the Russian Revolution. And at one point, you know, in one of his books, I think it's with a Britain in 1925, he writes about like Britain's entire sort of social stability, the thing that it prides itself on is based on the exploitation of the colonies. He says for each one citizen of Britain, there are nine people in the colonies. The enormous violence in the colon in the colonies supports your stability. You're only able to have these sort of gradual parliamentary reforms, sort of slow extension of suffrage because of the immense pillage that Britain is undertaking. But simultaneous to this, then in this sort of mid twenties period, there's the formation of things like the Anglo-Russian Committee. So in the re- lead up to the general strike in 1926, there's an alliance between the formal heads of the Russian trade unions and the formal heads of the British trade unions. This collapses when the general strike is betrayed in 1926. And Trotsky points out that, no, this is, again, it's to go back to the theory of permanent revolution we're talking about, this idea that the proletariat itself sort of creates these organs of democracy and that it can sort of leap through these other stages. Basically, what he says is that, no, this is entirely the wrong way to go about it. You can't have an alliance between the leaders of countries' trade unions and you can't rely on the leaders, essentially, to carry out what would be in the best interest of the proletariat. They have their own interests, which are separate to the proletariat. The trade union leader, for example, is interested in the continuation of the trade union, whereas, obviously, the idea of socialism is to get rid of the need for workers to mediate between management and themselves is to get rid of that intermediate layer. Yeah, so there's that. I mean, there's also, in terms of the national policies, sorry, international policies, Trotsky's appalled by the way in which the Chinese Chinese Communist Party has been instructed to act. At the time, the Chinese Communist Party is told to enter the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, mm. and is told to just enter them as like a left flank of the Kuomintang. Whereas Trotsky's sort of theorization of, 
the way in which communists should act in alliance with people to their right is that there should be what he calls a united front. So basically, from top to bottom, there should be unity, but only towards particular actions. You should never sort of fuse these two things together, even though for sort of reasons of recruitment, the original policy of Lenin towards the British Labour Party is all the communists to try and join it. But the idea with that is that the through the Labour Party refusing to allow communists to join, that they would expose themselves as, you know, the petty bourgeois lackeys that they are, whatever. So Trotsky's idea of the United Front argues that basically you should always be able to act in alliance with people to your right. So in the case of, you know, the Spartacist lead in Germany to the Social Democratic Party, in the case of um, Communist Party in Britain, to, to be able to work with people in the Labour Party. But you should always have independence of organisation and independence of action. Your actions should never be dependent on any one of the partners in the United Front. Whereas the policy of the sort of ruling faction in Russia at the time is a lot more flowery than this. It sort of argues that, and I think for fairly good reason, it sort of argues, oh, you know, the great proletarians will march together, or, you know, these people are complete swine. <laughs> there's, there's no idea that you would be able to separate out, well, I might think the people in the new party are soft as shite, but I should be able to work with them to defeat Nazis or to, you know, win some particular trade union victory. So there's all these tensions roiling up to this point when he's exiled. But basically, um, he's exiled never to return in about 1928, 1929, I think. And by this stage, I mean, Lenin has died. Mm. Lenin doesn't exile him. Stalin's come to power and Stalin exiles him, strips him of his Soviet citizenship. (laughs) Yeah, pretty good. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it. Pretty comprehensive. Yeah. End of part one. Bitch. We need these jobs. We need a union. It's a hunger strike, Ma! You don't want to nosh? Meet Leon Bronstein. Dad, where's our union representative? He's planning for the future, but he's inspired by the past. Because I am the reincarnation of Leon Trotsky. Leon Trotsky, Russian revolutionary leader, 1879 to 1940. He was murdered with an ice pick? What? You recognize this, don't you? My Life by Leon Trotsky? This coming fall, you, Leon? Just like this, Leon. We'll be going to public school. You'll find this is not like most public schools. I'm here to discipline the students. See you in detention. 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 What sort of legislative powers do you guys have? None. Do you guys want to form a real union? Why do you think high school should be unionized? The teachers have a union. I think we deserve the same. You're getting pretty famous. But you won't stop me. I don't think you need a lawyer. Oh, yes, I do. This is Leon. Uh, what is your name? Alexandra. You and I are going to get married. <laughs> Trotsky's wife was named Alexandra. I don't want to see you. Why not? I think you're crazy. But I love you. Students, tomorrow morning, walk out of class. Did you kip off the press? That's just local coverage. Your little cause will never happen. Oh, we'll see about that. We are here to give the impression that we were willing to talk sensibly before raining down a hellfire on your legacy. This isn't over. We both know that it pretty much is. Mr. Bronstein!
to the youth of the world. We will never be silenced. We will always be heard. You cheerleading? For what? For your brother becoming psychotic? Stop asking me to marry you. Was that a no? Hey, I was a joke.